grew up one of those independent cowboy types. You know, you know the guys, yeah. And sometimes I have a hard time generating a lot of sympathy for people who don't take stress by the horns and just, I don't know, rustle it down and do something with it. It's a big flaw. Honest, I'm working on that. But one stress I can really empathize with is climate crisis despair. Many people tell me this stress is like some kind of animal gnawing inside you. It's like this big, huge stress, tight, gnawing feeling. And it's made worse by the magnitude of the problem that is almost impossible to comprehend. And by the power of the people who really just don't give a crap about it. And, and on top of all that, the seeming helplessness of it all. Psychologists explain stress as a continuous feedback loop. The more you feel it, the less control you think you have and the more it multiplies. That is until something, uh, some event, some, some magical thing, some decision, some change of context occurs and then suddenly a light appears out of nowhere at the end of the dark tunnel of angst and it renews your faith, gives you energy, gives you new powers to fight on through the despair. Well, this week, uh, there was a single fact, one single fact changed that may just help us all, all of us who are suffering from climate crisis anxiety. According to the International Energy Association, uh, data that they released this week anyways, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide released by human beings into the atmosphere actually stalled this past year in 2019 at 33 gigatons. This despite a global economy that grew 2.9% in 2019, and despite a record billion 100 tons of natural resources used to fuel that economic expansion, and this is despite as well two years of record-breaking emissions in 2017 and 2018. This is great news. This is fantastic. But of course, that's still a lot of carbon, isn't it? That's so... That's so much carbon, it's even hard to do one of those cutesy pie, you know, how many Eiffel Towers or how many Empire State Building comparisons that people love to make. Actually, 33 gigatons weighs about the same as 95,000 Empire State Buildings, which, if you placed side by side, would stretch all the way from New York City to Los Angeles uh, and back. Okay, I'll stop. I think you get the point. But there is one more despite. Carbon growth also slowed despite the Trump administration's demonstrable hate on the environment and denial of climate change. While still far too much for the world to absorb, carbon emissions fell in the United States alone by 140 million tons in 2019 and is down one gigaton since its peak in 2000. Emissions also fell in Europe by 160 million tons. The declines? Well, they're due primarily to the expansion of solar and wind. Wow, 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 take that, Trump. Switching out coal with natural gas for electricity generation and more nuclear power. Not sure I like nuclear power. But the question on everybody's mind is, are we at peak emissions or the maximum emissions that we will produce in a given year? Or is this just a pause? Will emissions go higher? They're going to decline? Oh, these are all more anxiety-inducing questions. My recommendation? Don't worry about it for a little while. Forget about carbon for a month or two. Close down the climate crisis stress feedback loop. Close it down. Enjoy a pause. Get some angst 
carefree moments. Because we're going to need all the willpower, all the energy, and all the faith to fight emissions to a carbon-free I used to go to a lot of corporate sustainability conferences. They were interesting and I have to say quite exciting. Yet it was an odd crowd there. You know, everybody at once seemed to be both super upbeat and terribly frustrated. The problem? Everybody had great ideas, fantastic commitment, big job titles, bigger mandates, but little power and less budget. Well, frustrating hardly begins to describe it. But things are changing. Sustainability executives all around the world are being empowered these days by rank and file employees who are standing up to or standing with their executives uh, for a variety of sustainability issues. Well, this week, it was the members of the United Kingdom PCS Union representing 4,000 workers at leading cultural sites and museums. And in England, there's a church or a museum on every corner it seems. Now the union called for the British Museum in London to ditch a sponsorship deal with BP, that's the UK oil giant, uh, and this was on the heels of artists and environmentalists who had convinced the Royal Shakespeare Company to chuck its fossil fuel corporate sponsorship just last year. I, I really have to stop with the accents, don't I? Anyways, Cultural institutions have a moral responsibility, said Adaf Swift, the ex-Shakespeare Company director who resigned last summer over BP sponsorships. They have a moral responsibility, said, in who they choose as partners. And it's time to drop BP. Now, many are going to recall that hundreds of Google employees walked off the job in 2018 uh, protesting the company's handling of sexual misconduct allegation. Or some may know Amazon employees for climate justice have been pestering company CEO Jeff Bezos about becoming more proactive about the climate crisis. Employees are also calling out companies for their hypocrisy. Take Amazon and Google for example. While doing quite well on clean energy and a slate of other sustainability issues, they both, and most incredibly, work for the fossil fuel industry helping to search out and extract more oil and gas. More positively, 7th generation Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's we love Ben & Jerry's in Patagonia, don't we? Closed their doors for a recent Friday for Futures global protest. They let their employees walk out to participate. You gotta love Ben & Jerry's, but I wonder, I wonder, what might have happened if their parent company, Unilever, let all of their 155,000 employees in over 100 countries do the same thing? Last Thursday, you were out in the backyard having a winter barbecue. Nice, right? Nice until the police showed up, dragged you, your kids, the neighbor's kids, and some other friends away in the back of a truck. Sorry, they say, you don't own this backyard anymore. No, except you have legal title. And the property's been in your family for as many generations as you can even imagine, let alone remember. Think about it for a moment. It's not just about being dragged off, not just the complete helplessness you would feel. It's not just the economic cost, 
but the inexplicable loss of being torn from your deep emotional connections to the land under your feet. That is what's happening to the Wet'suwet'en Nation members in Northern British Columbia and Canada and their activist friends as they fight to protect their ancestral lands from the construction of the Coastal Gas Link pipeline. That's a 670 kilometer gas pipeline that can run right across their ancestral territories. While it's true the $5 billion project has the support of several First Nations councils, including five of the six Wet'suwet'en councils, the problem is these councils were formed by the colonizing Canadian government many years ago. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs they say the authority of these councils apply only to small reservation lands and not the 22,000 square kilometers of traditional territory the pipeline will traverse. Land for which the Wet'suwet'en Nation never surrendered its Aboriginal title. The battle is not per se an anti-pipeline protest. It's one of First Nations sovereignty and their territorial and human Right. This is a fight facing many other First Nations in Canada, and it caused solidarity protests to break out across the country this week, including the very cool Taitinaga uh, Mohawks, who disrupted rail lines outside of Toronto with a sofa and a snowplow. The Wet'suwet'ens say the Mohawks never had a treaty with the Canadian government, or any other government for that matter, so they can't, the governments can't claim or tell them what to do with their land. They're our brethren, and we support them, said the Mohawks. We support them in protecting their sovereign territory. Uh, several Mohawks were arrested, of course, as were dozens of other protesters in Vancouver, Montreal, Delta, and Smithers. Now that's solidarity. I have to say, I'm a bit shocked. The government and national police taking down people who are simply living on their own territory on behalf of big companies? Canada, we're supposed to be nice, right? Uh, maybe I'm biased, because one of the most enduring privileges I've had in my life was to have coached a lacrosse team, Couch and Valley, on Vancouver Island. Now, the team had several First Nation players from the Pemalakut Island, who are descendants of the Lutsam First Nation, historically known as the Lamalachi. And now the story is a little too long uh, here to tell how I came to love First Nations. But I will tell you this, we've been screwing the First Nations constantly ever since we Europeans came to their shores and we need to stop it. If we don't, we remain complicit in a system that is continuing crimes against humanity. Said Wet'suwet'en Chief Smogolem, they will not stop blocking the pipeline until the RCMP, that's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, get off our land and the Coastal Gaslink Company stops the pipeline. If I was there in Northern British Columbia, I'd be with you, Wet'suwet'en, fighting to preserve your sovereign rights. Because, who knows, maybe one day they'll come for mine. I want to take a moment to promote a really great group called Ecoside. Uh, Ecoside is trying to get Ecoside, or Great Crimes Against the Environment, recognized as a crime at the International Criminal Court. That's in The Hague in Netherlands. Last week, I interviewed their co-founder, Jojo Meta, 
for the Sustainable Century podcast. That's coming up soon. Watch for it in March. In the meantime, you can go to ecocidelaw.com and support them. They have a donation button. Hit it. And if you're enjoying this video or podcast, remember to comment, click like, or subscribe. And remember to pass the Sustainability Century pods, vids, or blogs along. And visit the sustainablecentury.net. Last week, the Sustainable Century Solutions podcast featured Eugene Elman. He's a pioneer of the Canadian sustainable and responsible investment movement, otherwise known as Environmental, Social, and Governance Investment, or ESG for short. In it, we marveled at the recent and rapid uptick of ESG uh, asset management around the world. Imagine, when we first started in ESG in 1990, that's a long time ago, uh, there were less than a billion ESG dollars invested in all of Canada and the United States. Now, it's something like, what, 12 trillion. That's 3% of all tradable securities in the world. That's a lot, but there's still a long ways to go before ESG has game-changing impacts. Or is there? You may recall mid-January this year, Larry Fink, CEO of the $7 trillion asset manager BlackRock, wrote in his annual CEO letter proclaiming for the third year in a row, ESG factors are important. But this year, this year he said it a bit differently and he said it better than the previous two years. This year he said ESG must take precedence over narrower interests of shareholder profit. Gene and I, uh, we didn't believe him. BlackRock, after all, continues to invest in coal, continues to invest in fossil fuels, and has way more nasty big agriculture than we'd ever want to see in our own portfolio. And as Andrew Bahar of As You So noted on another Sustainable Century Solutions podcast, you can check that out on sustainablecentury.net, BlackRock has never voted on any ESG resolution uh, put to their investee companies at annual general meetings. So our decade-long cynicism gets to remain intact. But last week, last week, damn him all the hell, Larry Fink had BlackRock spank Siemens, the giant German industrial company, for its role supporting the future burning of the Australian outback. Sorry, I misspoke. I meant to say for their role providing services to the plant and very large Carmichael coal mine in Queensland, Australia. Uh, this is the first time such a huge conventional asset manager has made such a stink. Admittedly, Siemens' 19.5 million contract to Carmichael for the provision of some signaling equipment is really quite small. So what's the big deal? Three, thing, three things stand out. First, until now, whatever ESG discussions BlackRock had been having with their investees had been, well, a lot more private. In fact, nobody really knew what they were talking about. Doing it publicly like this allows for and raises accountability expectations. Second, given the size of the Siemens contract, it was relatively small, BlackRock's questions were clearly more a message to other investees than an actual threat to Siemens' bottom line. Third, the size of the contract, it's kind of small, gives Siemens a simple way out. Had it been a big contract, sparks would have definitely flew and trouble ensued. Say what you want about BlackRock. It was a good move and I think it was done in the right way. 
In This Week in Sustainability last January, I said Fink's stakeholder over shareholder letter was important because it gave permission to the finance community to care about sustainability issues they once saw as not their business. Lo and behold, uh, this week, uh, Europe's largest asset manager, the $1.7 trillion Amunde, reported it would back a share action shareholder vote urging Barclays, that's Britain's second largest bank, uh, and Europe's largest fossil fuel financer, ooh, that's a lot of Fs, to stop offering loans to fossil fuel companies. That's a very good thing because Barclay provided some $85 billion in finance to carbon-intensive companies between 2015 and 2018. A Monday joins several shareholders, including the Church of England, to get behind the resolution calling for the phasing out of energy companies that do not align with the Paris Climate Accords. Well, it was a hard, hard week for democracy in the United States. After learning his impeachment lesson, President Trump proceeded to attack the very foundations of U.S. democracy this week by interfering in the sentencing recommendations of his cover-up crony, Roger Stone. Not a single GOP senator or congressperson stood up to challenge Trump as the walls between politics and the justice system seem to start crumbling. In protest or fear, three of the four prosecutors making the sentencing recommendation uh, quit the case. The others simply resigned from the Department of Justice. Trump's message is clear. He will bend justice to protect his friends and punish his enemies. Now, I've been to some 80 countries where in many, too many, an impartial judiciary is a rare thing, where the law serves officials who fail to serve the rule of law. In Russia, in China, in many, many countries, illegal incarceration, torture, fake witnesses, extortion, all too common. Talk tooth to power in many Asian, African, or Latin American countries, and you might just feel that you're lucky just to have been tortured. Maybe because many Americans haven't seen this for themselves, they can't fully appreciate just what a wonderful and delicate thing democracy is. I love America, but it's far from the world's greatest democracy. Gerrymandering, corrupt campaign finance, the electoral college, insidious and constant assaults on voter rights ensure that this is true. But it is a great democracy without doubt, and much of that greatness is founded on the continuing strength and independence of its judiciary. Maintaining and strengthening democracy is vital, not just for the sake of American civilization and American citizens, but for global sustainability too. If there is fear of judicial retribution, there can be no political or corporate whistleblowers. If there is fear of judicial retribution, there will be no corporate or political transparency or accountability. If there is fear of retribution, there can be no free press or freedom of association, both vital to exposing nefarious and harmful economic and government enabling activities. As the Trump administration continues to tear up incredibly important environmental protection and human right regulations and laws, many Americans will suffer while Trump and his cronies will continue to profit. Who will stand up to these and other injustices without the guarantee of human rights and a fair judiciary? As we have reported in This Week in Sustainability, there are a growing number of legal cases against fossil fuel companies, 
in the United States and other countries. But we also know that the fossil fuel industry has deep ties, very, very, very deep ties to the Trump administration. What chance do these cases have if Trump is truly and fully unleashed? Human rights, peace, biodiversity, climate and equality in America matter not just to Americans, they matter to the entire world. If Americans are poorer, if America's biodiversity is dwindling, if America does not seek to remedy the climate crisis, the world will be poorer, less safe, and global environmental disasters will be more devastating and more frequent. That is why the Sustainable Century urges America to vote out Trump and his GOP Senate enablers get them out of office in the 2020 elections. Doesn't matter if you vote Democrat, doesn't vote, matter if you vote uh, Republican. Get people in who believe in the rule of law and who will protect people that are working to make the world more sustainable. Now, the last word in this week in sustainability is from the Gitsan Carrier, now the Wet'suwet'en people, and it was written in 1977. We have governed the land, the waters, the fish, and the animals. This is written on our totem poles. It's recounted in our songs and in our dances. It is present in our language and in our spiritual beliefs. Our sovereignty is our culture. Our aboriginal rights and title to this land, our land, have never been extinguished by treaty or by agreement with the Crown or any other government. Signs of change in This Week in Sustainability is in keeping with our solidarity with First Nations. Many people in Canada know, and a few people outside of Canada know, that First Nations children, through the first part of the last century, were taken often forcibly from their families and ancestral homelands and put into white government residential schools, where they too often suffered even more unspeakable abuse. The debt we owe to the First Nations for taking their children and taking their lands and now trying to take it again, well, that debt is immeasurable. Well, that's it for this week in sustainability. Thank you for listening. If you have some news we missed, we'd love for you to let us know for the next week. Uh, uh, let us know in the comment section below or by signing up to the Sustainable Century updates at the sustainablecentury.net. And remember to click like in all the right places and pass the pod and vid and blog and all the stuff along. We'd be really happy if you did. We love you for it. And don't forget to get your copy of my book, Invest Like You Give a Damn, and join the many millions of people demanding more and better sustainability impacts through their investments. If you want more information on all things sustainable, why not check out the sustainablecentury.net. There you'll find pods, vids, blogs, articles, even some DIYs uh, about how to bring more sustainability into your life. And remember, it's up to you, it's up to us to make this the sustainable century. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields and I'm your host and this week in sustainability.